Welcome to HarperCollins Presents. This is Caitlin Gehring with Harper Audio. I recently spoke with Lauren Oliver, author of Rooms, available on September 23, 2014. Rooms is about a family who returns to clean out their upstate home after the death of Richard Walker, their father and ex-husband. The home is also inhabited by two ghosts of former owners, one of whom wants nothing more than to destroy the house so she can finally escape. As the family moves through the house, room by room, mysteries are uncovered and secrets revealed as the lives of the ghost and the living collide. Lauren Oliver is the New York Times best-selling author of seven books, including Before I Fall and the Delirium Trilogy. When she's not traveling, she splits her time between New York City and Connecticut. Before we dive into our interview, let's listen to a quick clip of the audiobook. Here, the Walker family has just returned to the house, and the ghost of Alice sees them for the first time in years. Minna comes through the kitchen, flinging open the door as though expecting several dozen guests to jump out and yell, Surprise! Jesus Christ, is the first thing she says. It isn't, Sandra says. It can't be. But it obviously is. There's no mistaking Minna. Even after so many years, Sandra claims it has been exactly a decade. I think it has been a little longer than that. Minna is changed. But she is still Minna. The tangle of long hair, now lightened. The haughty curves of her cheekbones. The eyes, vivid, ocean-colored. She is just as beautiful as ever. Maybe even more so. There's something hard and terrifying about her now, like a blade that has been sharpened to a deadly point. Jesus Christ, she says again. She is standing in the open doorway, and for a moment the smell of outside reaches me. Clover, mud, and mulch. Honeysuckle that must still be growing wild all over the yard. For a brief moment, I am alive again, and kneeling in the garden. New spring sunshine, cool wind, a glistening earthworm turned out of the earth, surprised. Thank you for coming in for this podcast. I read Brooms after having read your YA work, um, Delirium Trilogy and Panic, and I was impressed by how different of a story it was. Um, but at its core, it still had your very tightly written, very controlled prose. And I was wondering what the creation process for Rooms was. It was definitely challenging structurally. It took me a really long time to really find the structure that would, you know, in because the structure and the story of Rooms are in, really integrated. I mean, Hopefully that's always true of structure and story, but in particular, you know, the story really falls apart without the ghostly narrators and the house, the way that it's told. Um, And it took me a really long time to get there. I spent um, months and months um, writing drafts uh, about a family that returns home to kind of clean out the ancestral home. Um, And yet I couldn't really find the story and the specialness. Um, It wasn't until I started thinking you know, about structure and voice. And actually, you know, one of the things that led me to that, I mean, I was inspired by the idea of memory palaces, um, the mnemonic trick of memory palaces when I was writing rooms. But in order to find the kind of narrators, the two narrators, I did actually return to thinking about what 
makes my YA novels strong, um, what I'm good at, um, what kind of things I can bring as an author, and I kind of return to the idea of really strong characterizations, first-person narratives, and that actually led me into the idea of telling it kind of from the house's point of view. It's interesting that you bring up first-person narrative, because in this book itself, you have multiple points of view, both first-person narratives Mm -hmm. in the sense of the two ghosts, Sandra and Alice, Mm -hmm. but also um, each character kind of has their own voice, but told in the third person. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk about how you created that, how you came to decide to do it in the split first and third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, my first, again, I mean, Rooms had many, many drafts and many permutations. Um, my first version of, well, no, like my fifth version of, of the book, but the one that, you know, is most, the, the first version that kind of even slightly resembles what it subsequently became, just had Alice's point of view. It had a single-person narrative. Um, But the thing is, because Alice is dead and does not, as is typical of ghosts, have much ability to influence the physical space around her, um, the book felt, you know, stymied and kind of stilted. It was as though I were narrating a play because all she could really do was narrate action and recall. So that didn't work. Um, and yet at the same time, I wanted, because, you know, she and Sandra, the, the second ghost are the first person narratives. I did want that sense of narration of the fact that there's a present and omniscient present kind of watching. So the living characters get points of view, um, but they're told from a close third. I mean, it was kind of an insane decision when I realized I was writing a book with like six points of view, two of which were first person, you know, four of which are third person in both the past tense and the present tense. I was more than a little (laughs) scared. I'll put it that way. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that hopefully, again, it doesn't feel disjointed. It just feels like there's multiple kind of dimensions to the story. Well, and I think on the audio, we're able to have a lot of fun with that because mm-hmm. we were able to do a multicast voice. So not only do you get it on the page or in the writing itself, but you also hear all the different great. characters. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think it really comes, to, it's something special in audio. Yeah, it comes to I'm life. I'm a little biased. Right. But <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. I really can't. Um, but, and this isn't your first time doing multiple points of view. Mm-hmm. Is this a technique that you really like, or you, do you just find it's easier to tell sometimes certain stories in that fashion? Mm, I mean, it depends. It always depends on the story. Um, it is a technique that I like. Uh, I'm really interested in perspectives. I mean, who isn't? Um, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, people trying to unpack the quote-unquote truth about a certain situation. I think it's really interesting to interplay people's different um, points of view. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it just depends on the story. I mean, my next YA book, Vanishing Girls, also is, takes place from two people's point of view. Um, and actually, the book I'm writing now does, too. But I've also written, you know, in singular point of views, certainly. And in third. It's interesting that you mentioned, like, it helps you, like, unpack secrets because those secrets mm-hmm. were what really, like, drew me forward um, in rooms. Like, I pretty much read it all in one sitting at my desk, yeah. which is terrible in an open environment. <laughs> I'm totally working. There's well, you can only... pretend it's work, yeah. I mean, it was, 
It's legitimate. It's legitimate. You know, you're interviewing me. You needed yeah. to know what it was about. Interviewing, working on the casting. Yeah, and it was exactly. Like, I have legitimate reasons, and I'm just going to keep reading. Yeah, that yeah. email can be answered later. <laughs> but it was the secrets. Yeah, and just like the sense of mystery, both in the idea that these two ghosts. But even the idea that these people were keeping secrets from themselves, they were mm. lying to themselves, mm-hmm. were these built on real characters, or what kind of led you to this family dynamic as it exists? Well, I mean, you know, secrets in general are a really compelling way. I mean, I think to some extent secrets are at the heart of all suspense. What pe- I mean, the manipulation of information, who knows what, when, is kind of at the essence of suspense. Um Somebody once when I was in graduate school phrased it like, I think maybe it was a quote from Hitchcock originally, but like, if you have a person walking with a bomb in his suitcase and he knows that it's in a suitcase, that's not suspense. But if you have a person walking with a bomb, unaware that he is walking with a bomb in his suitcase that's about to go off, that is suspenseful. Um, because, the, you know, there's kind of a differential of information. Um, so that was, uh, you know, kind of a necessity in some ways. And also, yes, the, the everybody living and dead in rooms is bound by a kind of repressions or... I mean, everyone is haunted in a way. I mean, there's the literal haunting of the fact that two ghosts obviously live in the walls, but there's also um, kind of the metaphoric haunting. They all are troubled by things in their past they don't understand or things that they mistakenly believe they understand and they really don't. Um, you know, failures that they have, that they see on the part of their parents or their siblings or whatever it is. Um, and so that is kind of what unifies them in the, in the book and in order to kind of, and that's also the pursuit of freedom is also the central driving motivation of almost everybody in the book, but they all pursue it in very different ways. Um, so Carolyn drinks and Minna does other things. <laughs> That's a YA things. Yeah, Trenton brainstorms, you know, ways to kill himself in a dramatic and tragic fashion. So, you know, they're all pursuing some kind of escape, um, usually through routes that are not, for most of the book, through routes that are not going to provide them any. Interesting. And in a past interview in Justine Magazine, you mentioned that your work often deals with choice, in this case, like choices of way. Um, to seek their freedom, and also this theme of fear. Would you say that's also true in rooms? And if so, Um, how so? I think that, yeah, I'm interested in the ways that people definitely fear. I mean, I'm interested in the ways that people basically, in an effort to escape, you know, burdens of their own feelings, end up creating, recreating kind of, the prisons that have created or engendered those feelings in the first place. Um, Minna's effort to ignore or deny this deep sense of alienation leads her to recreate the same kind of trauma again and again. Um, So I think that basically in all my books, I only realized belatedly, um, most of my characters start off with, you know, at the start of the novel, my characters are basically motivated by fear, even if they don't feel like they are. And so what they're trying to do is repress that fear or bury it or drink it away. And the book is about, you know, all my books kind of are about the transformation, the discovery of agency, the ability to live more authentically, i.e. to act in, a, in ways that are n- motivated by something other than fear. Um, so I definitely think that that's true, uh, in rooms as well. And I think that that is the arc, certainly for, for the living family members, um, 
um, and also probably for the for the ghosts as well. Your work has spanned across age groups, both middle grade, YA, now adult. Um, which do you find the most engaging to write, or is it more? Is it something else that drives you to place them in each category? Yeah, I mean, if I didn't find all of them engaging to write, I wouldn't write all of them. Um, I mean, each story has its own, you know, internal exigencies. Um, and so certain stories need to be told in a certain way for a certain, certain audience. Uh, I also find that, interestingly, you can experiment with, you can actually deal with similar themes, and it's a challenge to interpret those themes or grapple with them for each different age group because they manifest so differently. The stories become so different. So for example, for middle grade, you know, you end up often translating emotional themes um, into a literal, literal construction. So if you want to write about like the way that people conceal or hide from each other, um, hide their true selves from each other, you might literally be writing a story about masks, you know, um, and like an evil puppeteer who makes masks. Um, so I think that that's really a fun, different challenge. And I mean, my mind just kind of works that way. I read really broadly. I always have. I fell in love with books when I was a kid and um, I edited and still edit YA books for years. And I also read a ton of adult books. So I think I'm inspired by a lot of different sources and the stories that and characters that come to me, each of them demands that I obey their particular rhythm and... Um, desire to speak to certain audiences. Which characters among the ones you've written have been the most difficult to kind of find that voice and find that placing? I never start writing a book and then realize that it should be for a different age group. Mm -hmm. Um, They come to me, you know, Rooms is about a family and it is about, you know, families, dramas and secrets and the way that we damage the people closest to us. It's about marriage and childbirth. I mean, it's patently not um, a YA book or a middle grade book. Um, middle grade, my The Spindlers is about a girl who goes underground to seek, you know, out the stolen soul of her brother and is accompanied by an overgrown rat wearing a newspaper skirt. That is patently not a book for adults, you know. Um, but in terms of the hardest character to find the voice, I mean, certainly for Rooms, I think Sandra's voice, I really love Sandra, but it was more difficult for me because of her particular kind of slang and way of speaking and also her life runs counter to my natural inclinations as a writer. Um, I tend to be a little bit verbose and, um, kind of lyrical and Sandra's not. And so struggling to give her stories and sections resonance while, again, not over overhandedly layering in my own voice was, was a challenge. Was there any sort of trick that you discovered that kind of let you access her voice? I had to prune back. Her voice was there. I was just layering it over with, spackling it over with my voice. So it was more a question of afterwards going back and pruning it, pruning away my interference, basically. Now, uh, over your career, you've worked in multiple aspects of of publishing. You started out in Penguin at Razorbill, I believe, mm-hmm. and then you you were an author, and now you've started uh, Paper Lantern Lit, mm-hmm. which on the website is described as a literary incubator. Can you kind of talk about what has driven your career along this path? Um, I'm just really into books. <laughs> I'm really uh, 
I love creating stories. I love, I mean, I love editing in many ways. I love working with new authors. I love helping them shape books. Um, I obviously love writing. It's been something I've done every day since I was nine. So I don't really have any sense of my identity or selfhood without that. Um, and, uh, and I'm also really, really, I'm full of creative energy. I always want to take on more projects. I'm just, it's how I process the world. I engage with the world through storytelling, um, through creative, you know, endeavors and expressions. So, um, there's always more I want to do and there's always more, more I want to work on. Um, and I think that's just, you know, I mean, it's really a, a career that's been driven entirely by just passion. In the past interview I read, um, you mentioned that your parents really helped encourage you to engage in imaginary games, mm-hmm. you and your siblings. Do you think that kind of is what helped spawn that? Um, I definitely think that was a huge contributing factor. My parents are both literature professors, so I was also raised with a deep love of reading. Um, I did. I had a very um, a childhood full of just imaginative play, and I think that's a really great thing. Um, you know, my sister didn't become a novelist. Um, she became a philosopher, but that was a big contributing factor. And then the other stuff is like, you know, whatever those random constellations are that make up our character, you know, some, some bizarre alchemy of genetics and, and, uh, environment and education and all of those things. I mean, my whole life has been about making up stories and reading stories. It's not a bad life at all. <laughs> no, it could be worse. I'm not complaining. Um, and you're constantly in front of your readers and your fans, uh, whether you're on tour or online. We were talking earlier, you just got back from Edinburgh. Um, what are some of your most memorable moments with your fans? It's always really amazing to go across the country, I mean, across the world and, you know, Malaysia, Philippines, and meet people who know and love your books and connect to them. Um, That's a very humbling and um, gratifying experience. I get letters all the time, um, which is wonderful. Um, I've made some actual real friends out of some of my fans, so it's really hard to select one moment in particular. Um... But yeah, no, I have I have great fans and I'm really engaged with them. What are some of the most exciting locations that you've been able to go as a result? Um, well, I'm going to Dubai in the spring. That's very exciting. I am hoping that my uh, hotel room is upholstered entirely in caviar and oil. Um, and uh, I have been to Malaysia and the Philippines, which were awesome. Um, Australia was amazing, getting to go to Australia. Um, but I mean, I get to go to Spain, I get to go to France, I get, I loved Edinburgh. I mean, I really get to go and use this as an excuse to travel and see places that I want to see. Although, of course, then you end up seeing nothing but the inside of a hotel room and conference center, but still. But you have the stamp in your passport. Exactly. You have been there. Um, what was one book that sparked the writer in you? I remember like, you know, when I was a kid, like nine and 10, I, or even younger, probably eight and nine, um, Wind in the Willows was hugely influential. So was the Redwall series. Um, I would, I really loved apparently personified animals or anthropomorphic animals. And so I would write stories about the characters, you know, after the books were done. Um, and so I was kind of doing fan fiction, which, or an early predecessor to fan fiction since we didn't have online forums back then or online at all. Um, so, so yeah, I would, I would list those too. Yeah, it's really impressive how creative fan fiction 
is just in how it lets you expand and mm-hmm. experiment writing. Yeah, definitely. Although I do remember also being really inspired when I first read Jonathan Safran Foer's Everything is Illuminated. Um, that was when I was my, a senior in college, and after that I tried started writing my first novel. But throughout my career, I mean, like, when I was a freshman in high school, I started to write a novel that was an update of, you know, a Jane Austen. So my reading and my writing have always really been respondent to one another. And if you had a choice of any actor or actress, for that matter, to narrate the story of your life, what would it be? <sighs> um, oh my gosh, I have no idea. Maybe, um, maybe that guy who always does the, the disaster movie previews, In a World, where Lauren Oliver, <laughs> that guy. It would be very dramatic. It would be intensely dramatic. You would be battling the end of the world exactly. every day. Yes, yes. Even if it's just, you know, to get down to the kitchen. Yeah, that's how I sometimes feel having to get up in the morning anyway, as if I'm battling intergalactic space aliens, so I think that seems appropriate. And if you could have dinner with one author, dead or alive, who would it be? And what would you talk about? Mm. Um... Well, you know, the late, great, recently deceased Gabriel Garcia Marquez is a really big favorite author of mine. Um, But I'd probably have dinner with Shakespeare and be like, hey, dude, did you really write all those books? Because there's a lot of controversy about whether or not you are the real Shakespeare. That's probably what I would do. You are actually the second person we've interviewed that has said Shakespeare. Well, but for that reason? No. Okay, yeah. That re- uh, her reason was we wanted to just ask him about, like, what were you thinking with some of these relationships? Right. No, no, no. I want to be like, you know, you've spawned a lot of feminist and other kinds of controversy, so did you actually write it? Um, that's what I do. Or maybe J.K. Rowling would be like, hey, can you take me up in a private jet sometime? No, just <laughs> Actually, I would love to have dinner with Stephen King. I really would. I really admire him. I admire his career. Stephen King and Neil Gaiman are two people who who I would love to have dinner with someday. Nice. Last question is, what's one question that you've never been asked, but you've always wanted to be asked? Mm, you know, I actually, that question I get a lot. I was joking that the other day that the question I wish I were asked and never am asked is, hey, Lauren, why is your hair so pretty? But the reason I'm never asked is my hair is a disaster. Um, but for less superficially... Um, I don't know. I feel like I get a lot of really penetrating questions and many ones that aren't very penetrating. So I'll have to do some brainstorming for the next time. By my next release, I'll have the answer to that question. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Is there anything else you want to add? No, thank you. I'm so thrilled to have been here. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me about rooms. I'm so excited for it to come out so everybody else can read it and they can understand why it's read or listened to in one sitting. You've been listening to HarperCollins Presents, a podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Today we spoke with Lauren Oliver, author of Rooms, available on September 23rd, and listened to a clip from the multicast audiobook, narrated by Barbara Crusoe. We hope you will join us again. Thank you for listening.